Well, Father, we, we do indeed thank you this morning for the great gift of your Lord Jesus Christ that you sent out of your love and your kindness to be the Savior of the world, to be our Redeemer, our sin-bearer. Thank you, Father, for your great grace. Thank you for not leaving us alone and for sending your Holy Spirit to be our encourager, the one who is alongside of us, the one who indwells us, the one who takes your Bible and illumines it, and the one who brings conviction over sin. Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit's ministry of being the great restrainer of sin in the world as well. Now, Father, as we turn our attention to your Bible, I pray that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, sensitive hearts, an attitude of discipline and determination to go and implement change, to discipline ourselves unto godliness, all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, as we struggle and as we stammer through this world that you are faithful, and even when we are faithless, thank you for loving us even while we were yet sinners. So, Lord, as we turn our attention now, move among us, encourage and strengthen, I pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, I don't know what he was thinking. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I can't help but imagine that that young man, David... You know who I'm speaking of, David the shepherd boy, David who killed Goliath. There he was, watching his sheep, settled in for the morning, and perhaps the neighbor boy ran over and said, David, your father wants you home now. He sent me to care for the sheep, and David went home directly to see his father, Jesse, and his father gave him this instruction, son, here's a bag. There's breads, there's cheeses. I want you to go to your brothers who are enlisted in the Israelite army, who are engaging with the Philistines. Go, get a report, bring it back to me. Oh, you know the story well, don't you? I have to believe that young David's heart just lifted and he grabbed that sack and off he went. Happy to have a change of pace, happy to leave the sheep with the neighbor boy, especially happy to get to go check out the battle. Little did he imagine that he would nearly be knocked down when he arrived, not by the enemy, but by the retreating Israelite army. Can you imagine the scene? On the one side of the Philistines, this is 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel 17. You don't have to turn there, but you can read it later. 1 Samuel 17. The Philistine army on the one side, the Israelite army on the other side. And for some 40 days, they had been assembling and mustering rank and gathering to engage the enemy God's people had, God's men. And here comes this young boy, nearly bowled over by the the retreating, frightened Israelite army as Goliath the conqueror had come out, challenged them to come. Don't you love David's spirit? Don't you love what this young man does? Grab some guy... Hey, what's going on? What's going on? Well, the enemy has us down. The enemy is pressing in on us. The enemy has totally intimidated us. 
We are afraid. We are capitulating. We are giving in. Don't you love the spirit that rises up in this boy? Not on my watch. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Let me redefine reality here, guys. And this young guy goes up to King Saul. It's hilarious. Shepherd boy, young guy, probably can't even shave yet. The trained army ranks have fled. And he walks up to the king and says, Fear no more, king. I've come. I'll take him on. I'll get him. you got to love that, don't you? Don't you love that? We're God's people. We don't run from the enemy. The Goliaths of this world are not going to defeat us. We are not a defeated people. We are not of this world. We are not intimidated. And in the strong name of his Lord, he goes down there and does what? Goliath says, they send a dog, a little puppy dog, to lick my feet. David says, you can come at me with a sword and a spear, but I come at you in the name of the living God. Bam! And in seconds, Goliath is dead, and David has stuck him with his own sword and cut off his head. Today is Father's Day, you know that. Congratulations, Father. Aren't you thankful for fathers? Thankful for my father and the great impact he and role he played in my life. Today, I want to encourage fathers specifically. Particularly, I want to encourage young fathers. And you can define what that is, but I specifically want to encourage fathers who have children in their home, under their tutelage, under their watch. I want to encourage you because using Goliath as a spiritual word picture, it seems that the world and the Goliaths of this world are pressing in on the Christian home and we're not faring so well. We are intimidated by the world. We are, in the words of Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2, conforming to the image of this world. It is getting more and more difficult to discern the difference between a worldling pagan and God's people. We run in fear from the enemy. We yield ourselves over to the enemy, lest we be mocked or laughed at. We fit into the pattern of this world, and I'm looking for young men in the spirit of young David to stand and say, as they oversee their homes, not on my watch. Goliath is not welcome here. I don't care how powerful the intimidating forces of the world are. And in the words of Grandfather Joshua, we will say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're not running from the enemy anymore. We're not going to capitulate. We're not giving in to the weaknesses of the flesh. We're not going to look like the world anymore. We are God's people. And in the strong name of our God, we will stand and we will fight against this world. Now, I don't mean that we're going to kill people physically. I mean it's a spiritual battle. And didn't Paul make that clear? Didn't he make it clear in Ephesians chapter 6 where he said, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, 
The forces of darkness in high places. We, it's a spiritual warfare, isn't it? And you can feel it, can't you? I was speaking to one of the young men in our church who is a father of young children. It was almost like tears were in his eyes, and he said with a weariness, he said, I am just so sick of this world, and I can't wait to go home. He wasn't suicidal at all. He wasn't defeated. He was just longing for a better place. He was tired of the mire and the muck that presses in all the time, that, that seeks to draw away our children and destroy them. And so my challenge on this Father's Day is for fathers to be the first line of defense, to go to war spiritually, to be the spiritual leaders of our homes, to stand against the Goliaths of the world, and to be determined that as for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. The world is not welcome here. This is God's place. I give this message to the Father in the spirit of being the man that God called to oversee his home. Yes, mothers are invaluable and so important, and it's a team effort this parenting is. But if you're a father with young children in your home, you are responsible. You're responsible to keep the heat on. You're responsible to keep the roof from leaking. You're responsible to oversee their behavior. You stand accountable for their spiritual development as well. And isn't it the father? He's the one. It's the middle of the night. There's a crash of glass. The children come run and duck under the covers. Mama's pulling up the covers. And she's saying, go see what that was. It's not mama who goes. It's not the kids who go. It's dad who grabs the flashlight and maybe some other piece of hardware and down he goes. <laughs> Who's in my house? You don't come in my house. You don't invade my space. Because why? Because this is my house. I'm the dad here. I'm the head of this home. You don't mess with my family. That's the spirit with which I want you to hear this message today at a spiritual level. In the same way that you would not let some criminal come in to molest and destroy your home and family, and you would fight to the death to protect your children and your wife and your home, we need an awakening within. We need our young fathers and our old fathers to say, not on my watch. This is my home, and we're going to live for Jesus. It's not going to be easy, and that's why I use the analogy of David and Goliath. It is going to be a fight. In fact, the Apostle Paul told young Timothy it would be a fight. And he said, fight the good fight of faith. I want to employ a passage of Scripture that was written to a specific person for a specific reason... And I want to borrow this passage, and I want to make a broader application. Let me explain. Will you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6? I want to use verses 6 through 16 in Paul's prison epistle to Timothy. The first epistle. Epistle simply means a letter, a writing, instruction. And the old apostle Paul is at the end of his ministry. He knows that time is short. In the next chap, in the next book, 2 Timothy, it's going to be his final letter that he writes after writing much of our New Testament, after carrying the weight of the churches upon himself all these years. He's in prison now. 
That's why we, we call these, these are part of the prison epistles, but they're also called pastoral epistles. The reason they're called pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy, is because the Apostle Paul, unlike 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, unlike those writings, which he wrote to an entire group of people, a church of people, and then they circulated around to others, these books he wrote specifically to young pastors. This one was written to Timothy, a young man that Paul had mentored. He had ministered with him. And then Titus was another young pastor. The churches are growing. The churches are being established. They're under pastoral and elder leadership. The Apostle Paul has now been put in prison for the sake of the gospel. It won't be long and he's going to have his head cut off. He called it being poured out like a drink offering. He said, I have run the race and I've now finished the course. Timothy, and much the way Elijah took his mantle and put it on Elisha. Paul takes his mantle of authority, apostolic authority, pastoral leadership, and he puts that mantle of responsibility on young Timothy to guard the churches. And so 1 Timothy is first and foremost specifically written to Timothy with instruction on how to lead and govern in the local church. I want to take that and I want to redirect that to young fathers because I want to think about it. A pastor does what? A pastor shepherds the flock. A pastor has a responsibility to oversee families, to oversee and protect. Fathers, you're a shepherd. In a sense, you're the pastor of your home. Pastor means shepherd. You're the one that is the overseer of your home. You're the one that has a little congregation. It's called your family. And you are that kind of a leader. You are called to be a godly leader at the same level as any other leader. And so though we're jumping into a passage of Scripture that specifically is directed to a pastor about church leadership, I want to redirect it to fathers about home leadership, so therefore making sort of a broader application, but I think well within the realms of safe Bible interpretation and Bible application. Let's read our text. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning with verse 6. Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were made, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blemish until or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. 
God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. What a great passage of Scripture. Now, the Apostle Paul has been giving instruction ahead of this in the context to young Timothy about charlatans in the ministry, about people who will preach the gospel and will use the church for false monetary gain. He then goes into a sequence that is as relevant today as the day it was written. It's almost hard to believe that this was written 2,000 years ago, isn't it? Because ever, if there is a problem of the world pressing in upon our homes, if ever there is something that is stealing the hearts of our children and turning our homes away from effective following of Jesus Christ, it is money and materialism. It's killing us. And the Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy to watch out for these charlatans in the ministry, you've seen them, they're they're as real today as they were then, Send your money in for the gospel to go around the world when he goes out and gets in his BMW and drives to his multi-million dollar beach home or flies in his private jet across the country to yet another charlatan rally where he's going to fleece people for more money. All the time preaching the gospel. It's despicable and they're going to burn in the hottest part of hell even though they say the gospel over and over in their mouths. That's what Paul's talking about. But in so doing and in so giving that instruction... He puts his finger on an area of the fight. And he says to Timothy, you've got you to warn the people about this. You personally have got to hold back. You've got to fight the good fight of faith. Look what he says in verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life, which you were called. And he said, uh, later on he said, and keep this command without spot or blemish. Keep what command? What he's going to instruct in this very passage. Keep these commands. Live it out. And so it's a fight. Fathers, listen to me. As you pastor and shepherd your children and your home and your family, it's a fight and it's not a one-time fight. It's a lifelong fight. It's spiritual warfare. It will never go away this side of heaven. You have to wake up in the morning alert to it. You have to go to bed at night praying and overseeing and thinking about your home and your family and being the spiritual leader, the spiritual guardian to fight the good fight or Goliath will come from any direction and press your children into its mold, the world's mold. Destroy your children, defying God. And don't we see our children leaving the church incredible rate. And so there's this battle. The battle isn't over. And I want to suggest now that there are six fronts. We won't take a long time with any of them, but there are six battle fronts. You might say six theaters of war, six battle fronts that he's going to suggest in this passage that the father has to fight and you have to keep fighting the good fight. All right. And mothers, I hope you're ready to listen and to encourage your husband to fight this battle. Fathers, I hope you're ready to hear and to take it and to realize that it's my job to fight. It's my job to lead the way. The first battle that the father has to fight is the fight for reality. Number one, the fight for reality. Look what Paul says now to our text for Bible study, 1 Timothy 6.6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Listen, this is a foundational premise. This is a a worldview concept. 
this is a reality that if you don't get, you're going to miss the entire reason for living for God in godliness. We have the world pressing in on us, telling us what is real. Most of what the world tells us is real is make-believe. You ever think about that? And it's utter nonsense. And the first thing Paul says to Timothy is, know this. It is godliness with contentment that is great gain. You want a reward? You want to hear well done? You want to live with value and meaning and significant significance and be welcomed with rich reward into your eternal dwelling, then you become a godly person and you become content. And to reinforce that concept, he says this, here is reality. You better define reality, Dad. It is this. You brought nothing into this world and you're not taking anything out of this world. So therefore, you better live well for what it is you're living for and don't live for this world. You can't take it with you. Job said the same thing. Job said in chapter 1, verse 21 of Job, he said this. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. That's sobering, isn't it? You don't know when that's going to happen either. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, said in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 15... He said, naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes out, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry on his hand. Do you get that? It is possible to spend your entire life laboring to have something in your hand, only to leave it behind and it be worthless. And that's what Paul is challenging Timothy, and that's what I'm challenging our young fathers with. Battle number one is the battle to define reality. Reality is, most of what we're involved in is an utter waste of time, and it is godliness with contentment that has value. Because we brought nothing into this world, and we're not taking anything out. I have a saying in leadership that has helped me through the years, and it is this. The first task of the leader is to define reality. Let me say that again. The first task of the leader is to define reality. What do we mean by that? Well, there's all kinds of realities. It's too cold. It's too hot. I don't like hymns. I like this. I want to play ball. I don't want to play ball. I want to eat. I don't want to eat. What's reality? You're the leader. You better define it. Have you ever heard the saying that, Perception is reality. Everybody has their own perception, and they think that's reality. And I'm telling you, Dad, that's nonsense. Perception is just perception. Reality is reality. And the challenge of being the dad is to define what is reality for your home. Are we godly? What is reality in this world? What are we really living for? What is our family really amounting to? Battle number one, the battle to define reality. Battle number two, Dad, that you're going to have to keep fighting. These battles never end. By the way, on this point of not being able to take anything with you, I read an interesting quote by, about John D. Rockefeller, famous multi-gabillionaire guy. And they said that after he died one of his aides was approached by someone and they said, so how much money did John Rockefeller leave behind? 
And they say that the aide turned to the guy and said, all of it. Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. What is the defining reality of your world, and why are you living? What are you doing? Number two is the fight for simplicity. Notice Paul's call to Timothy to fight the good fight for simplicity. Look what he says. But if, verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Oh. Do you know that we live in a world that talks about simplicity but makes a mockery out of simplicity? We live in a world that has pressed us into its mold and we are so cluttered with noise and stuff and things going on that we have no clue what's going on around us. We haven't had a peaceful, quiet thought for a long time. There's too many bells, buzzers, whistles, things going on. Much of what the world is pressing in upon us is unnecessary. Before World War II, about that time before the turn of the century, people shopped and bought things based upon need. If you wore out your tractor, then you went and bought a new tractor. We live in a world where we're bombarded with people trying to convince us why what we have is no good and why we need to upgrade of what's next. It's not because we wore it out. It's because they want us, and you watch advertising. So much of it is inclined to make you dissatisfied with your life so that you have the next thing that, and this is a lie, will make your life simpler. And we have so many things in our life in our life to make our life simpler that our lives are incredibly complex and complicated. Listen, with modernity came complexity. Let me illustrate it this way. Today's Father's Day, I thought I'd have a manly illustration. So I brought my dad's hammer and I brought my past load finish nailer. Okay? They both do the same thing. Do you know that? They both drive nails into wood. This is complexity. This is simplicity. This is modernity. This is simplicity, practicality. You see, this does a great job, and this is a neat thing. Don't get me wrong. I just had to have it. I can't hang crown molding without it. I can't build a fireplace mantle without it. I can't build bookcases without it. I got to have it. 400 bucks. Free. This takes gas cylinders. 12 bucks. Leave the cap off wrong and it'll drain out on you and go to waste. Right when you need it. It's not there. This is always there. This needs a battery. The battery has to be charged. Oh, my battery's not charged. I have to wait until my battery charges. Oh, my battery wouldn't take a charge. I've got to go pay 48 bucks at Home Depot for a new battery. Oh, I don't know where my charger is anyway. This comes without batteries. Do you know a lot of homes have been built with these? Oh, granddad would get that toolbox with the broomstick handle open, had a frame and square sticking out, a fold-up rule, a chalk line, a couple hammers, frame and hammer and a finish hammer. 
couple nail sets, his Barlow jackknife in his pocket, and he built beautiful homes. I stayed in some. Janet and I just enjoyed some beautiful country inns built in the 1800s along the coast of Maine. Beautiful. Built with this, not with this. See, the world is pressing in trying to tell you, you got to have this. you got to have all of the latest of this. What is this? Can I tell you something while I'm going to rant here for a minute? Can I tell you that nobody cares when you brush your teeth? Don't Twitter that. <laughs> nobody cares. Nobody cares how many loads of wash you did. Don't put it on Facebook. Nobody cares. You say, you don't know, Pastor Ben. They do. They're on it all the time. I know. What a waste of life. What are you doing? Let me tell you something else before I get fired. (laughs) Your kids do not need cell phones. And if they have a cell phone, they don't need a cell phone that takes pictures. And they don't need a cell phone with a keypad. And you don't need a cell phone with a keypad. And the cell phone you had was just fine. And you'll be a lot better off if you shut it off more often. We are so cluttered. We are so overwhelmed with the latest thing. Got to have it. What did Paul say? Listen, I'm ranting, but I'm biblical. I, I challenge you to defy, according to God's word, what Paul is saying here. Listen, he's saying this, and you know it's true in your heart. Because you're overwhelmed, you're tired, and you want some peace of mind. And Paul says... But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Dad, sometime when everybody's online, watching TV, Twittering, texting, sending, listening, listening to their music, go out in the garage, find the main breaker, kick it over. Shut the place down. And say, doesn't that feel good? See, you know what? The reality of the world, the Goliath reality of our world has come in and conquered our homes and we are raising children who are bored out of their mind so that if they're not pushing buttons, listening to music or doing the next thing, they're going out of their minds. What a shame. What a disgrace for God's people to not be content. For God's people to take our resources and waste them on the next best thing. Shame on us for being pressed into the world. You say, what do you want me to be, a Mennonite? No. I want you to be effective and good at everything you do. And I'm not down on any of that stuff as far as a tool goes. I'm just saying, use it for God's glory. And stop being bored with what you have. And stop wasting your resources on the next best best thing when you don't need it. And furthermore, in just a few months, your thing is going to be obsolete and you're going to need another thing. We have to fight for reality. We have to fight for simplicity. We have to fight for integrity. Let's look at this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. That's reality. Verse 8, food and clothing will be content. That's simplicity. Verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. There's a lot of people living in cages this morning because of what they did for the love of money. The word pierced there, they have pierced themselves with many griefs. The Greek word is the word impaled. They have been run through. They have been destroyed by it, killed by it. And notice, too, that he warns of the trap. Oh, we need money, and we have to function, and we ought to be excellent managers of our money, and we ought to take our resources and multiply them, and we ought to be thinking in every way, creatively, how we can take our resources, our money, and our things, and develop them and use them for the glory of God. Many godly people are, have been rich and are very rich, Some of the most wealthy people I know are people who are using their wealth for God's glory. And you can see God heaping it back upon them so that they can keep using it for his kingdom. Job was one of the richest men that ever lived. David was rich. Many men in the Bible were rich. Abraham was rich. It's not wrong to be rich. It's all about our motive and what's got a hold of us. And Paul's warning Timothy to warn his flock... You have to fight for the good faith, and the faith is you're going to have to overcome the love of money. Fathers, you've got to fight the good fight in your household. We're going to overcome the love of money and things in our household. We're not going to be driven. We're not going to be dominated by this. We're not going to let the Goliath of the love of money come in and defeat us. And so upon our simplicity, we're going to build with the reality of a fight for integrity. Look what he says. We're going to be honest. We're not going to do stupid things, unlawful things, things that ruin and destroy and plunge men into destruction. And notice what it says. People driven, verse 9, who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. That comes from a Greek word that is the word for a snare. You know what a snare is? It's like a loop. You think you can get through it. You're heading through it. And the next thing you know, you're stuck in it. It seems so good. I've been trapping groundhogs around my deck in the backyard. You animal lovers can relax because groundhogs, when they die, go to groundhog heaven. Okay, there's no groundhog hell. So don't worry about it. Okay, do not worry about it. Groundhogs were put here to cause problems in people's yards, gardens, and fields and to be shot. Okay? Don't leave our church over that. So I've been trapping groundhogs. And I got this have a heart trap. And so I'm thinking to myself, I wonder what a groundhog thinks about. How do you think like a groundhog? So the other night, Janet was peeling cucumbers and carrots, getting ready for a tossed salad for supper, and I thought to myself, I know what a groundhog thinks like. He thinks... That's really good. I thought I got those cucumber peelings and I got those carrot peelings and some other food items. And I took my trap. I put some up in the front of the trap where you have to cross over the trip lever. And I put some in the back. But then, thinking like a groundhog would think, I started where his hole comes out underneath my deck. And I put it and I put it there. And I thought, this is what a groundhog thinks about. He thinks when he comes out and there's cucumber peelings there, he thinks today is a good day. He thinks, I need that. He goes, that's good. I like that. And then he takes a bite. And he said, oh, 
That's good. I like it even more. And he, then he smells the carrot peeling. That's how a groundhog thinks. And he eats the carrot. And I know it's true because he ate every one of them. He ate every one of them. And he thought, there's more. I need more. I need more, 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 more. And the groundhog thinks, more. This is my best day. And if nobody will come out of the door, I'll be all right. And he's eating more, more, more until, bam, I got him. And he went to heaven. All those groundhog virgins waiting for him. So you don't have to feel bad for him. And we turned off the lights. And that's exactly like us when we smell money, isn't it? How does a person think who's heading down the money trap trail? Who's heading down the materialism things trail? I'll tell you what they're thinking. Ooh, I like that. I like that smell. I gotta have it. Oh, this is a good day. This is a good day. We're gonna get more, 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 more. Oh, you mean what I have isn't good enough? Oh, you mean this is, you mean only, only old fogies like Pastor Van have these? I'm more cool than that. I can have this? Oh, let me get my credit card out and sweat. I want that. Bam, bam. Bam! And you're in the trap, and some of you know, and it's not funny. And your life is being constricted, and you're in the snare of the money trap, and it's killing you. And Dad, we know better, and we've watched it happen, and we've allowed it to happen. We do it. Can I really quick rattle off for you? Some common indicators that might mean you're heading down the money trap trail. It might not mean you're impaled yet. It might not mean you're stuck in the trap yet, but you're heading there. You're thinking, this is good. And you've eaten cucumber and now you're ready to eat carrot. And this thing's going to get out of control. Here's how you know it's getting out of control and you are ready to be killed by this Goliath. If, number one... You spend more money each month than you make. Well, that's a really simple thing, isn't it? Do you know that some of the smartest people in the world don't get it? They're called congressmen and senators. <laughs> and they spend, spend, spend like there's no tomorrow. I guarantee you there's a tomorrow coming. And just this week I saw in the news report that the president of Russia, Medved, or whatever his name is, has, has in his hand a minted proposed gold coin that is called the... Uh, something nations coin, the beyond nations, it, it means after the nationhood coin. It is a proposal for a universal global currency. Do you know why we're going to need a universal global currency? Because our money's going to be worthless. It will be worthless. Because why? Because we have spent so much money that it is meaningless and we have no ability to pay it back. And when we do that at our household level, we're spending more money each month than what we have coming in our income. And that leads us to the second warning. The second thing is, is that I am using my credit cards inappropriately. The second yellow flag, the second symptom that I'm heading down the money trap trail is A, I have spent more money than I bring in each month, and B, I am now using my credit card so that I can do what? So that I can... Get the next thing that's so good. I gotta have it. 
I can do it. I'll put it on the credit card. And now you're not even making payments on the balance of your credit card. You're barely making payments on the interest. This isn't funny, is it? No, it's not funny, and you're stressed out by it. And I'm not beating you up, and I don't think you're stupid. I think that Goliath got in your house. Thirdly, this is you if you're heading down the money trap trail. You rarely, if ever, give to the Lord's work at any level that could be described as generous because you can't afford it. It is a direct command to give generously. I'm not trying to raise the offerings. I'm trying to just see great things happen all around the world for the cause of the gospel. And we are extremely resourced for that, and we don't give because I'm after the next thing, man. The fourth thing I do if I'm heading down here is to make myself feel better is I go back to the store and I buy more, particularly of things I don't need, namely shoes. The fourth symptom that you're heading down the money trap trail is pleasure spending. I don't feel good if I don't spend. If I'm down in the dumps, I go and address my emotions by spending more. I'll swipe my credit card again. I know that I can't make payments, but I'm going to do it again because I really like this. I have absolutely no need of this. Oh, I'll wear it once or twice. It'll be cool. You have absolutely no need for 39 pairs of shoes, 49 pairs of clothes, whatever it is. Don't need it. What did Paul say in the text? With food and clothing, be content. People who want to get rich and spend money fall into the temptation, the snare. Number five symptom that you're getting impaled, the point is touching you or ready to run through you, is that you are now secretly using some of your gas money to buy lotto tickets and you are beginning to gamble and you even pray when you buy your lotto ticket, Lord, bail me out of this mess. And you don't know what to do. And the sixth thing that might indicate that you're heading down the money trap trail is what Paul said in here. You have now, for the love of money, wandered from the faith and pierced yourself through with many griefs. You are now in a position where you are beginning to, thinking about, or have been doing, making unethical and even unlawful decisions, things you never would have done some time ago. You are now doing because you are under such financial pressure. Let me say it again. I don't think you're stupid if this is you this morning. I just think it's time to wake up and start the fight, the good fight. And so let me give you four baby beginning steps, and we're going to end with this. How do I get out of this? I've eaten the cucumber peelings. I've eaten the carrots. I want more. They're right there. Yeah, I've got 19 pairs of running shoes, but I just like this pair. Yeah, I I got two good cars, but I really like the smell of this one. How do I get out of that? What do I do? Number one, this this is not difficult. Number one, stop spending. You have to make yourself stop spending. All right? I'm talking, cut it off. You put gas in your car, that's it. You stop spending. You cut up the credit cards. You operate on cash. You get accountability in your life. You know somebody in your world knows how much money you're taking that day. You have to bring yourself under spending control. Number two, you seek godly counsel. I want to tell you something. 
If you are on the way into or are in the money trap and you are beginning to be impaled or you are impaled with this problem, you cannot solve it yourself. History shows that you won't do it. Here's what I want you to do. I'm serious. I want you to call me or email me. Say, Pastor Fan, I could never admit that I've been such an idiot. I'll tell you something. There's a whole room full of idiots. But for the grace of God, there go I. You will not tell me any. hundred times. Do you know how many times I've had people in my office who make more than 50000 a year who cannot pay their bills? You have to humble yourself and you have to seek help. You call me or email me or call one of our elders and we will connect you with a trained, biblically literate, disciplined person who will come to your house in the privacy of your home. They will sit down at your kitchen table and you spread all of your mess out and you show them the muck you've made of everything and you let them begin to put it into piles and sort it out and they will pray with you and they will love you and they will encourage you and they will show you how to start getting it together. You need accountability and you need godly wisdom in your life. A, stop spending. B, get accountability and godly help. Three, listen, this is very important because all of this is Almost 99.9% of the time, if you're in the money trap, it is because of a spiritual issue in your life. And it is this. You need to, number three, confess and forsake the idols of money and materialism in your life, dash, and begin in a brand new way to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. You need to confess and forsake the money and materialism idols of your life. Those are the things you are worshiping. You heard what I read right before the offering from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. For where your heart is, there will your money be also. And everywhere your money has gone, that's the reality of where your heart is. You say, but I don't, I don't know how this happened. You know, I know how it happened. happened. The world pressed us into its mold. We weren't careful with our biblical obedience. We didn't fight the fight, and that's why I'm addressing young fathers today. You have time. Fight the good fight of faith. Don't give up. Don't give up. Fourthly, and this is a very important, this is more important than it sounds if you're going to have victory over the money trap. The first one was stop spending, cut up the credit cards, pay cash. Secondly, Seek godly counsel. Get a plan of recovery going. Number three, confess and forsake the idols of money and materialism in your life and begin to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life in a brand new way. Get excited about living for Jesus and walking in biblical obedience. And number four, start giving things away. Start giving. I want to tell you something. You cannot recover from the love of money until you learn to give it away. Need a 20? Here's a 20. Oh, oh I love 20. <laughs> Pay for less, has shoes for less than 20. Listen. Our homes are weak and ineffective. Our churches are living below their potential. Why? 
God has resourced us as a people like no other time in history. I fear that the window of time is short, that we will be resourced at the level we are. It is time for us to get our homes in order. It is time for our fathers to fight the good fight. For us to say, this is the reality of this home. Godliness comes first. Contentment is a result of godliness. And that is what is reality. Not all this stuff that's fake and make-believe and breaks. We will define a new reality. We will move into simplicity. We will function with integrity. We will get out of the money trap. Let's bow in prayer. Before I close in prayer, I just want you to let the Spirit of God prompt you and speak to you. This is the kind of message that you have to take now and you have to think about and you have to apply it. You have to take it home with you. Would you make it your prayer here to say, Lord, help me to start living for righteousness and godliness with faith and love, with perseverance, with gentleness, to be the man, the woman you want me to be. Wives, if your husband wants to fight these good fights, won't you stand with him and encourage him? Husbands, won't you be gentle with your wife if she's not ready to fight the fight with you? We've got to get our homes under control. And I'm so convinced that this is a telling point and that Goliath is in our living room He's in our kitchen, he's in our garage, he's in our basement. And we're running from him. It's time to fight. We ask God to strengthen you in the battles. It's never going to end. It's continual. Let's live for heaven. Let's live for eternity, not for this world. So, Father, take these words, take the challenge, apply it to our lives, help us to define reality and help us to move into simplicity, to operate with integrity so that we can be effective soldiers for Christ in the spiritual battle. Lord, the world needs Christians to be living for Jesus, not to be caught in traps. So help us to live that way, Lord, by your grace. Teach us your way, Lord. Show us how to live. We need it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.